passages ninety one through ninety five of reflections on the formation and distribution of wealth by anne robert jacques turgot translated by nicholas de condorcet this librivox recording is in the public domain ninety one the total riches of a nation consists one in the clear revenue of all the real estates multiplied by the rate of the price of land two in the sum of all the movable riches existing in a nation real estates are equivalent to any capital equal to their annual revenue multiplied by the current rate at which lands are sold thus if we add the revenue of all lands viz the clear revenue they render to the proprietor and to all those that share in the property as the lord that levies a rent the curate that levies the tithe the sovereign that levies the tax if i say we should add all these sums and multiply them by the rate at which lands are sold we would have the sum of all the wealth of a nation and real estates to have the whole of a nation's wealth the movable riches ought to be joined which consist in the sum of capitals converted into enterprises of culture industry and commerce which is never lost as all advances in any kind of undertaking must unceasingly return to the undertaker to be unceasingly converted into enterprises which without that could not be continued it would be a gross mistake to confound the immense mass of movable riches with the mass of money that exists in a state the latter is a small object in comparison with the other to convince one's self of this we need only remember the immense quantity of beasts utensils and seed which constitute the advances of agriculture the materials tools movables and merchandises of every kind that fill up the workhouses shops and warehouses of all manufacturers of all merchants and of all traders and it will be plain that in the totality of riches either real or movable of a nation the specie makes but an inconsiderable part but all riches and money being continually exchangeable they all represent money and money represents them all ninety two the sum of lent capitals cannot be understood without a twofold reckoning we must not include in the calculation of the riches of a nation the sum of lent capitals for the capitals could only be lent either to proprietors of lands or to undertakers to enhance their value in their enterprises since there are but these two kinds of people that can answer for a capital and discharge the interest a sum of money lent to people that have neither estate nor industry would be a dead capital and not an active one if the owner of land of four hundred thousand livres borrows one hundred thousand his land is charged with a rent that diminishes his revenue by that sum if he should sell it out of the four hundred thousand livres he would receive one hundred thousand are the property of the creditor by these means the capital of the lender would always form in the calculation of existing riches a double estimate the land is always worth four hundred thousand when the proprietor borrows one hundred thousand that does not make five hundred thousand it only follows that in the four hundred thousand one hundred thousand belongs to the lender and that there remains no more than three hundred thousand 
to the borrower. The same double estimate would have a place in the calculation if we should comprehend in the total calculation of capitals the money lent to an undertaker to be employed in advance for his undertaking. It only results that that sum and the part of the profits which represents the interest belongs to the lender. Let a merchant employ ten thousand livres of his property in his trade and engross the whole profit or let him have those ten thousand livres borrowed of another to whom he pays the interest and is satisfied with the overplus of profit and the salary of his industry it still makes only ten thousand livres but if we cannot include without making a double estimate in the calculation of national riches the capital of the money lent on interest we ought to call in the other kinds of movables which though originally forming an object of expense and not carrying any profit become however by their durability a true capital that constantly increases and which as it may occasionally be exchanged for money is as if it were a stock in store which may enter into commerce and make good when necessary the loss of other capitals such are the movables of every kind jewels plates paintings statues ready money shut up in chests by misers all those matters have a value and the sum of all those values may make a considerable object among wealthy nations yet be it considerable or not it must always be added to the price of real estates and to that of circulating advances in enterprises of every denomination in order to form the total sum of the riches of a nation as for the rest it is superfluous to say though it is easy to be defined as we have just done in what consists the totality of the riches of a nation it is probably impossible to discover to how much they amount unless some rule be found out to fix the proportion of the total commerce of a nation with the revenue of its land a feasible thing but which has not been executed as yet in such a manner as to dispel all doubts ninety three in which of the three classes of society the lenders of money are to be ranked let us see now how what we have just discussed about the different ways of employing capitals agrees with what we have before established about the division of all the members of society into three classes the one the productive class of husbandmen the industrious or trading class and the disposing class or the class of proprietors ninety four the lender of money belongs as to his persons to the disposing class we have seen that every rich man is necessarily possessor either of a capital in movable riches or funds equivalent to a capital any estate in land is of equal value with a capital consequently every proprietor is a capitalist but not every capitalist a proprietor of a real estate and the possessor of a movable capital may choose to confer it on acquiring funds or to improve it in enterprises of the cultivating class or of the industrious class the capitalist turned an undertaker in culture or industry 
is no more of the disposing class than the simple workmen in these two lines. They are both taken up in the continuation of their enterprises. The capitalist who keeps to the lending money lends it either to a proprietor or to an undertaker. If he lends it to a proprietor, he seems to belong to the class of proprietors, and he becomes co-partitioner in the property. The income of the land is destined to the payment of the interest of his trust. The value of the funds is equal to the security of his capital. If the money lender has lent to an undertaker, it is certain that his person belongs to the disposing class, but his capital continues destined to the advances of the enterpriser and cannot be withdrawn without hurting the enterprise or without being replaced by a capital of equal value. 95. The use which the money lender makes of his interest. Indeed, the interest he draws from that capital seems to make him of the disposing class, since the undertaker and the enterprise may shift without it. It seems also we may form an inference that in the profits of the two laborious classes, either in the culture of the earth or industry, there is a disposable portion, namely, that which answers to the interest of the advances calculated on the current rate of interest of money lent. It appears also that this conclusion seems to agree with what we have said, that the mere class of proprietors had a revenue properly so called, a disposing revenue, and that all the members of the other classes had only salaries or profits. This merits some future inquiry. If we consider the thousand crowns that a man receives annually, who has lent sixty thousand livres to a merchant, in respect to the use he may make of it, there is no doubt of this being perfectly disposable, since the enterprise may subsist without it. End of passages 91 through 95